The Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome as he writes this letter. Uh, This is the second imprisonment of Paul. He was in prison before. That particular imprisonment, um, he was treated rather kindly uh, during that imprisonment. This is not the case. He had been released. He had gone back to Ephesus. He's back at Rome. And this is a time of intense persecution of believers in Christ. And um, this imprisonment is a whole different matter. In fact, this is around 64 A.D. This is either the year that Paul's going to be beheaded or within a year or two, uh, just depending on how, how people look at that. He's in a dark, dank dungeon of a cell, and uh, he is awaiting death. So, you know, somebody who kind of feels like they're going to die pretty soon is writing something down, and uh, and when people don't think they're going to last much longer on this earth, sometimes they, they kind of get down to what's important and the things they want to say. I've, I've lived through that experience with a father who uh, died at age 42 and was told five years before that that he had five years to live. And so I had a, a rather interesting uh young adolescence of a father imparting all kind of adult things to me in the window of those five years because he just felt like these are important things and I need to pass them along. In 30 years of being a pastor, I have noticed that when people receive such a diagnosis, um, the world kind of shifts on its axis for that person to, to, to ask, what is important? What do I need to do? What do I need to say to the people that I love? Paul is writing this letter to the person that is closer to him than anybody else in the New Testament, anybody else in his life. Uh, his name is Timothy. He has become the, he's young, he's become the pastor of the church at Ephesus, which was at that time the center uh, of the Christian movement in all the world. It kind of went from Jerusalem to Antioch to Ephesus. And uh, this is the last letter, at least scriptural letter, that Paul ever did write. Uh, this letter that we call Second Timothy. So we're going to really tune into his kind of knowledge of his approaching death this morning and, and what is important. Dear Timothy, these are the important things. That's this book. That's, what, that's the journey we're about to take. And he starts this letter the way everybody in that culture started the letter with a, a greeting, um, a salutation, as they used to call it. And that's what our text is today. It's just the, it's just the greeting. Is it okay to preach just on the greeting? I don't know. I mean, you know, when we pick up a book of the Bible like this and all the, the epistles or the letters have greetings. I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of skip the greeting to get on to the important stuff. I want to get on to the body of the letter. Whoa, don't do that here. Uh, there, there is something not to be hurried over. Uh, we can learn something very important here in this greeting. And so let me just make it, it, put it in a simple way for you to remember. Could you write this down? This greeting is about two things. It's about how we live the life and give the life. It's about how Paul is living the life and how he wants to give the life. 
In verse 1, we find out how he's living the life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. He is living the life. And, and what Paul is saying to Timothy and, and the great thing about Scripture, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us is don't settle for a life in your life, I mean, other than the one promised in Christ Jesus. You will sell short if you settle for a life other than the one promised in Christ Jesus. Now, not everybody knows the story of Paul. Uh, we, it, it is an amazing story. He says that he is an apostle by the will of God. And boy, is he an apostle by the will of God. Um, so let me just, to help us get to know Paul for a minute, let me ask you this question. Do you know anybody that just hates Christianity? All right, second question to build on that question. Do you know anybody who not only just hates Christianity, but is a terrorist at the same time. <laughs> That's Paul. Paul is this young zealot in the party of the Pharisees. He's like, the, he's like this, this uber scholar, um, leader, high energy, high focus, don't take no for an answer kind of person. And when the Christian movement in Jerusalem you know, began to, to, to really spread. Um, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people believed at one time. So it was, it was happening, right? Paul felt that this was heresy, that Jesus of Nazareth was not the Messiah, could not be the Messiah. The Messiah isn't supposed to be crucified. The Messiah is supposed to ascend to the throne of David and utterly rout the enemies of the Israelites as opposed to being killed by the Romans. And Paul is so angry and so filled with zeal for the, the, the faith of his father, so to speak, or at least his interpretation of it, that he makes up his mind that he is going to stamp out this whole thing. And boy, they had the right person to head up this, round them up, and get rid of them. And he started arresting people right there in Jerusalem. You know, the problem with Paul the terrorist, he had the full authority of the Jewish temple and the Jewish authorities behind him. He had the arrest warrants in his pocket. And so now people are fleeing from this, all these beatings and, and arrests and they're fleeing to Damascus, the believers are. I mean, this thing was working. And, um, and so Paul learns they're going to Damascus, so Paul gets on his horse. Paul says, we're going to Damascus. He gets extra papers to, to do whatever he wants to with those people in Damascus and to bring them back in chains to stand before a jury and be declared guilty and punished for being a Christian. So he is, his nostrils are flaring just like his horse's nostrils. You know, he is angry. And he is on, can you see him? He is on his way to Damascus when 
a light so bright it was the very glory of God just knocked. I'm talking about thick, weighty, glory light just knocked him down off of his horse outside of Damascus. And a voice came from heaven. Saul, who is also Paul. Saul, Saul, the voice said, why do you persecute me? Saul knew it was God immediately. He had no clue. He said, who are you? Boy, the next sentence was really not good for Saul. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh Uh-oh, that might be bad. But it wasn't bad, because Paul is an apostle by the will of God. Paul was shown that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. He is the Savior. He understood, and Paul not only believed in Jesus, but Paul was set apart as a, an apostle to bear the name of Jesus, and he always loved this thing, to, this part, to suffer many things. Yeah, he's an apostle by the will of God and by the grace of God. He is intercepted by God on the way to Damascus, utterly transformed, utterly forgiven, utterly falls in love with this God who would forgive him. And he is an apostle. And what a ride it would be. Paul successfully took the gospel to the expansive Gentile world. And time does not permit to tell the stories of beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and and all kinds of things, as well as churches being established throughout the Roman Empire. Tell you what he is as he begins 2 Timothy and any other book that he wrote. He's a person captured by God's grace, literally on the road to Damascus, but still in his heart. Paul never could get over the grace of Jesus Christ to him, the one that he called the chief of sinners. He was a model of wonder. In fact, one of the reasons we go to Paul when we want to be encouraged in the gospel, the grace of God, is he is a model of wonder. He is a model of amazement. You know, I love how Isaac Watts kind of brings this feeling to us uh, in the great hymn. And we sing it a lot during communion. Uh, the great hymn, How, how um, Sweet and Awesome is the Place. Let me just read this verse. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and would rather starve than come? Amazing love. How can it be that you, my God, would die for me? You know, I I feel this too. I, I feel this sense of amazement. And I'll tell you, I wish I could tell you I feel it all the time. And you know, when I lose that sense of amazement at this free grace of God just given to me because God loved me and just wanted to, that's the only way we can describe it is God so loved. Uh, when I lose that sense of amazement, it's not good. And Paul is here to help us understand what this life we can live is about. And it starts with the will of God. 
It starts with a sovereign God who gives grace to people who don't deserve it. Um, God's will is the life. Now, you know, it's interesting to me how, and I'm just kind of thinking, people wouldn't say this out loud necessarily, but I'm just telling you this is the way we think at different times in our life. It's just interesting how people don't always associate the good life with God's will. And it's like it's kind of like we we almost treat God's will like eating spinach or something. You know, it's really it's like God's will. God wants you to do this. Uh, it doesn't taste good, but it's good for you. It's God's will. And you know, the the good life, the the sweet life, is. It's not something somebody else would choose for us. It's something we would choose for ourselves. Isn't that interesting how we kind of separate God's will from the good life? Well, Paul's telling us that the life promised in Christ Jesus by God's will is the good life. It is the good life. Um, William Hendrickson, in his work on Second on Timothy says, this is not a promise of a life. God promised life, the one in connection with Christ Jesus who purchased and won this life for us and thus it becomes for us the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Paul's saying live the life and it comes from God the good. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just look for a moment at what the Bible says just real quick about what this life is like and as Paul says hey I'm an apostle by the will of God and according to the promise of the life that's in Christ Jesus basically this life in the scriptures is eternal it's abundant and it's shared it's eternal meaning that it lasts forever uh, meaning that it's indestructible. And, and uh, I'll just, I, I, I like reading this next passage from the King James Version. Um, this is John 11, 25 and 26. You, you hear it at funerals a lot. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. And he that believeth in me, yea, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he asks, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is asking that question. The life is eternal. And look, Paul in this dungeon, literally facing death, that, that's an important fact about this according to the life promised in Christ Jesus. Uh, and I want you to know that one of the reasons you can face today and tomorrow, I don't care what is in your life, if you've put your trust in what Christ has done, if you have become his son or daughter, number one, you have him. He loves you. He is with you. He is your Emmanuel. But number two, you can face tomorrow because tomorrow isn't the last word, regardless of what it is. There is an eternity, there is an indestructible grace, an indestructible life that awaits us. You understand, that's one of the ways the early church coped with the incredible persecution. You know, losing your job for being a Christian, getting beaten up for being a Christian, being killed for being a Christian. And being killed, we're going to heaven. Whatever's going on here, and I know that we as modern Americans, we are so, and look, we need to show up for our own lives, so please don't misunderstand. We need to be present, 
But we are so present and so in love with all the stuff, gadgets, money, levers that we can pull, all this great stuff that we tend to forget a little bit about the assurance that we have of the life. And it matters. And we're supposed to live in light of eternity and not just the next release of the next iPhone. You know, we're, we're, we're supposed to live our life by values that transcend the moment that will survive forever with God. Isn't that, that's great. If you have Christ, you're a part of permanence. The, the life promised in Christ Jesus is eternal life. It is indestructible life. But uh, that this life isn't just a, a quantity thing. Jesus brought it to a matter of a quality thing when Christ said that he came to give life and to give it abundantly. Now, you, you know, you think of the word abundance, right? It just means a lot. You know, it, it just means quality. It means good. It means rich. It kind of means overflowing. Um, that he came to give full life, rich life, overflowing, because this is life with God. Now, I'm going to paint a picture and what I'm going to do is try to fuse together two ideas from two different passages. The first will be from the 23rd Psalm where the Lord is our shepherd and he gives us everything we need. And he leads, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still water. You know, all of these things. And then the other passage that I kind of want to fuse this with is Ephesians 5 where Christ is our bridegroom and we are his bride and he loves us and he get, gives us all that we need out of this tender, loyal love of being our bridegroom. So let me try to push these together for us so we might could maybe understand a little bit what abundant life is like. Um, picture a person just the opposite of the Lord's my shepherd, I will lack nothing. Here's a person who's all alone. Here's a person that is hot and tired and thirsty spiritually, internally, uh, just trudging along, lost, without God in the world. And the sun's beating down on this person. And there is no shelter for this person. Um, and this person is getting down and getting confused and there's no one to encourage him where the encouragement actually reaches to that deep and fundamental place of what is real. And the more he tells himself that his life is great, the deeper this underlying disappointment and emptiness gets. That's what um, underneath life is like without God. I know. I lived my first 20 years like that. Now, I want you to picture a picnic. Now we're going to get to Psalm 23, okay? You are a beautiful bride. You are with your bridegroom, and he loves you. You can look into his eyes, and you can just see the, the incredible attachment, love, uh, willingness to, to be with, to suffer for, this loyal love, and just delights in you. It's a beautiful green pasture by, beside a still water pond. And there you got, you know, uh, um, you know, he, he spreads the table, Psalm 23. So why don't we make that a blanket? 
and there's just the most beautiful food and it's cool and the sun's out and it's more than than you could eat and there's abundance and love and assurance and fullness of just being with him that's quite different from that person trudging alone trying with an emptiness in their heart trying to convince themselves that their life is good it's kind of a picture of an abundant life with christ the abundant life has to do with who he is to us and it's an internal thing so this quality of life is the best quality uh, and it provides meaning and everything to our lives. I love First uh, Timothy six nineteen in, in the NIV, and it talks about how how people uh, take hold of the life that is truly life. Don't you love that? There's like living, and then there's life in Christ. There's life, this grace life, this love life that is truly life, and it's direct to us as people, direct to our hearts. I read an article in Christianity Today some time ago, actually it was 2015, about kind of what does the abundant life mean in our culture today? Because a lot of people think it kind of means the, the health and wealth gospel, that if you love Jesus, you'll be rich, and if you love Jesus, you'll always be healthy, and kind of what you can get out of God, you know? Ed Stetzer in this article, uh, Christianity Today article, kind of got down walked through all of those saying it's not that it's not that it's not that and uh he basically took the article to hebrews 11 hebrews 11 is what we call the hall of faith it's a list of all these people we admire because of their faith and most of them died for jesus uh none of them had what we would call a 21st century life of uh prosperity and abundance that's the hall of faith he goes the abundant life can't be what people say it is because hebrews 11 doesn't bear it so it must be something more meaningful than our stuff that we get from god and thankfully it is kind of gets down to this explanation he says the abundant life is not about what we hold and have it's not about what we get from god in the way of tangible things it's it's not about what we can claim by faith from god Ultimately, he says, the abundant life is about what we receive as a gift from the Lord and live knowing that we are stewards of every good gift of God, that God gives us his love. We are his bridegroom. He gives us his peace, his grace. He gives us all things needed in Christ, and we steward that. A part of what makes being a Christian in the 21st century hard is, is allowing us to just kind of back off of the volume and the noise of those other things, and probably all of them good, don't get me wrong, to be able to just ask, is there something more direct to my heart from God that's not in the way of, of monetary or tangible or et cetera, to be able to quiet our souls to say, yes, this is what we need the most, this life promised in Christ Jesus, promised because of his death and and freely given this grace, love, forgiveness, new life, eternal life, and these these wonderful qualities of, of, of all that God gives us. My cup runneth over the abundant life. So the life is eternal, it's indestructible, it's abundant. And then thirdly, this life that we live is a shared life. 
That is, it's in the context, not of just me and Jesus and all he gives me directly, but it's in the context of, of, a, of loving relationship with other human beings. It's in the context of his church. We come to know Jesus. We don't just gain a father in heaven. We gain brothers and sisters right here. Uh, it's called the church. It's called a family. Family of God equals church. Now, can I take you back to the picnic for a moment? Go back to the picnic. Remember the picnic? Okay. Um, now I want you to shift the scene to a different picnic. I want you to, uh, now we are at a church picnic. Uh, what we hear in the South called dinner on the grounds. Y'all remember dinner on the grounds? Uh, now we have church picnics out in back, but we don't have those long tables i mean, i love going through the country and you you come around the corner and there's this little clapboard white church and there's more money in the long concrete tables uh invested than the church building so what's that saying that's saying that being together and the sunday dinner on the grounds is real important to that church so we're at the dinner on the grounds and uh there are children laughing and it just smiles all around. There's long tables, more food. It prepares a table before me, you know. That's Psalm 23. More food than you've ever seen. And those, those people know how to cook at those churches, by the way. I've been to some of those. Uh, all home cooked. Everybody's pitching in to do their part. There is conversation and caring. There is storytelling and singing. And you are rejoicing with your family. You see, that's also the abundant life. It's not just what Jesus through the Holy Spirit gives you in the way of forgiveness, love directly. It it is this shared life. Now, one day we will be able to put those two pictures together. The picture of the picnic and the picture of me and us and our bridegroom and the picture of dinner on the ground with with our family, the, the church family. Because one day there's going to be this great wedding feast. At the end of days, it's going to be us with our bridegroom. And he is going to love us in his gaze. And there is going to be a feast beyond all feasts. It will be the most plussed dinner on the grounds we will ever have seen in our life. And we will know tangibly that the abundant life is with Jesus our Savior. And we will know tangibly that the abundant, overflowing life is with our brothers and sisters in the presence of Jesus, our Savior. Isn't that beautiful? You know, there are people who think all the time, if I could just get away by myself, if I could just go live by myself for a while, if I could just get away with myself and, may I add, asterisk, and have money so I don't have to work, okay, so if, if, if I could just get away by myself and live by myself for a while and have money so I don't have to work, you know what I could do? I could become such a better person. I could work on me. And uh, I could take care of myself. And I could become a better person. That's not true. That is not true. Now there are times when we need to be away. I'm not saying that. (laughs) From the pressures and from people, uh, you know, it's good to to pull away and, and, and recover a little bit. But typically, we only become better people 
with people. You just write that down. We don't become better people just thinking of ourselves. God's love, God's grace, people to share it with, the stewardship of it all. This is the life. And so that's what Paul says. He goes, you know, I I am an apostle. The grace came to me. My purpose came to me by the will of God. And the will of God for me has been the life promised in Christ Jesus. The, The will of God to me has become the good life. Live the life. But the second thing is give the life. And this is where Timothy comes in. Uh, The thing that drives Paul, the thing that compels Paul in his apostleship is that life. Now, how do I know that? Please look at verse 1. His apostleship is according to the life. It's, It's in conjunction with the life. It's driven by the life. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So his purpose is driven by the life. In fact, the Greek word here that means according to, kata, can also mean intense compulsion of or the domination of. Meaning Paul is under the compulsion of the life that is promised to live that life and to give it to other people. He wants to give the life. There's a sense in which just right here in the the greeting, Paul's kind of casting a little bit of a vision um, for what's important to him. Before he even addresses Timothy, his protege, that Timothy would, would want to be a bearer of this life. But more than that, would want to be a promoter of this life for other people, want to be a proclaimer of this life for other people, want to be a leader in God's church to lead people, lead the church to represent this life to a very, very thirsty and needy world to give the life. And, you know, that that vision of living the life and, and being able to give it is a vision that Paul was willing to die for and he was beheaded in either 64 or 67 AD, depending on who you talk to. His head was chopped off by the Romans because of the driving compulsion of living for the gospel, this life that is in Christ. This is the last letter to his best friend. And it's the heartbeat of King Jesus. And it is, this this second Timothy is Jesus' vision for for our lives. Um, So important is giving this life to Paul that Paul will make sure that his ministry goes forward after his death. You need to understand that's the other importance of Timothy. Timothy is somebody that Paul met as a young man. Next week, you got to come back next week because we're going to learn about Timothy's childhood and when he met Paul. Paul met him as a young man and, and, and Paul became, that was the person closest to Paul. But he's not just writing a letter because he's close to Timothy. 
He's writing a letter because Timothy is being raised up by Paul to be a leader in the church. Timothy has now become the pastor, now in his late 30s, early 40s, we don't know, um, of the, the, the most you know, significant church in the entire Christian movement, uh, the church at Ephesus. And, and Paul is writing this because he wants to make sure to give the life when he's gone. Through Timothy. You know, being a, a Presbyterian has lots of benefits and drawbacks. But one of the benefits is this idea of the covenant and how God works forward through families and church and raises up a new generation. And one of the great things is, it's just when, er, when you turn on the news or Christian news or turn on the Christian radio would be the worst or best, depending on how you look at it, and just really realize how everything's going to Hades. We come back to church and we look around us and we say, oh yeah, this, this is going on beyond, beyond us. Isn't that great? We're going to give the life. We're going to give the life now. We're going to give the life for, for generations to come. So uh, let's look at these words of love. Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved child. Paul's closest friend, the, 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 it, it literally, uh, the agapao, it has to do with the, the one that I love. Notice he calls him a child or my son. I mean, this isn't like, to Tim- Timothy, my good buddy. Uh-uh. To Timothy, my beloved child. The one I've known, the one I've loved, the one I have poured into. And the rest of this book is that final kind of last will and testament of Paul to Timothy and to us so that we can run the race set before us well. So that we, as Paul says, can say, I finished the race. And uh, as we study forward beginning next week in 2 Timothy, if it will be, if you open your eyes and your hearts and your minds, I promise you it will be clarifying. It will also be comforting. It will be motivating. And it will show us how to be amazed in the gospel again. And how to be energized in the gospel again. To live the life and give the life. So could could we go to prayer now? And I want to make the last part of verse 2 our prayer if you don't mind. So close your eyes please. My son or my daughter. Grace, mercy and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace to you today through Jesus, this gift to the undeserving. Mercy to you in Jesus today, this help to the helpless and the weak. This peace to you today, rest in your soul before God because of Jesus. From God the Father, who has loved you before all worlds if you have put your trust in him, who cares for you with a tender father's heart, and Christ Jesus our Lord, 
who not only saves us, but lives this life within us and leads us to give the life. Would you do that in our hearts as we open up this amazing letter together? We pray these things and ask for you to give us amazement in the gospel. Hallelujah. The gospel is true. Amen.